Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez. To address California's affordable housing crisis, Governor Gavin Newsom directed two agencies to find state-owned properties and aggressively find ways to transform them into affordable housing. According to his office, the order has so far resulted in at least 16 plans involving the state, housing developers, and communities to develop more than 5,000 new rental properties throughout the state. The most recently announced plan is to transform three state office buildings in downtown Sacramento into what is promised to be hundreds of new affordable housing units. Those three buildings are located on or near Capitol Mall, the current headquarters of the California Employment Development Department, the EDD, EDD's Solar Building, just a few blocks away, and the State Personnel Board Building at the corner of 8th and Capitol Mall. The Department of General Services hopes this project will breathe new life into state office buildings in downtown Sacramento. In a few minutes, we'll be speaking with Sacramento City Council member Katie Valenzuela, whose district includes those buildings. But first, we'll hear from the two state agencies that have been tasked with this project. Jason Kenny is deputy director of the Department of General Services and is joined by Sasha Kurgan, deputy secretary of housing at the Department of Housing and Community Development. Thank you both for being with us this morning. Thanks for having us. Yes, absolutely. So can you tell our listeners more about your agencies and what their respective roles will be in this specific project? Jason? Yeah, uh, the Department of General Services is the business manager for the state of California. So our job is to ultimately uh, undertake those those sort of transactional uh, efforts that departments can't do on their own. In the context of this housing program, back in 2019, Governor Newsom, uh, by executive order, directed my department and the Department of Housing and Community Development to undertake an ambitious uh, uh, a new program to develop housing, uh, affordable housing, on excess state property. And so we've been uh, co-leading that effort since then, uh, and these, uh, these, these projects are a part of that. And how do both of your agencies plan to work together to accomplish the transformation? Well, our, luckily, our teams have been working together since the governor signed the executive order in 2019. So we're already in a really good rhythm of bringing our skills and expertise and really playing to our strengths. So like Jason said, you know, I think of them like our state's real estate agent, and we're lucky to have a really high capacity real estate agent in this regard. At the Department of Housing and Community Development, we bring all of our housing policy expertise, our knowledge of housing finance, and knowledge of how to get affordable housing built in our state. We also weave in other policy goals like how housing connects to our climate strategies. So our teams work together on a regular basis, not only through these public solicitations, but all the stuff behind the scenes to make government work together better. Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg said this project has the potential to create about 1,000 new housing units, but Assemblymember Kevin McCarty said about 20% of that housing would be affordable. Can either of you uh, clarify the expected number of new housing units that will be created with this project and how many of them will be affordable? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, it would depend on whether or not the buildings are adaptively reused or whether or not uh, a more new construction-centric approach is taken. Um, if it is new construction, then there's a, a greater potential, obviously, for, for units. Um, if they are adaptively reused, uh, somewhere in the ballpark between uh, 350 and 500 units is probably what to expect. Um, when we initially studied the buildings for uh, affordable housing, we looked at them from a 100% affordable perspective. 
Um, I think what the assembly member is referencing is our leasing authority and statute allows for certain things um, and sets a minimum number of affordable units. But so far, the majority of projects in our program tend to be much closer to the 100% affordable um, than not. And this is where it's really exciting to see what kind of responses we get, not only from the development community, but also from community members and the local team as well. Um, Like Jason said, we have a minimum amount of affordability. And I just want to put that in context. You know, affordable housing in this regard, it's 80% of area median income. These are working families. These are seniors who are on fixed incomes. Um, These are, you know, 80% of area median income for a two-person household. That's $64,000 a year. And so we are not, um, it's not only the, the lowest income, it's really a range. And this could be a mixed income project. And that's what the statute allows us to do. Sasha, the term climate friendly housing has been used a lot with these types of projects. Can you explain what that is and how it relates to this specific project? Yeah, I think this is a great example of what climate friendly housing can be. I mean, I think of it not only within the unit for climate friendly, that could be energy efficient homes, um, healthier materials that improve indoor air quality. But this project is really notable for the climate impacts, both of the location and, as Jason mentioned, the adaptive reuse potential. So I'll take those in two turns. On the adaptive reuse, think about that as like recycling a building, using the existing bones of the building to go from a non-residential use, in this case, a state office building, into residential. There's embodied carbon in that building and a lot of savings from an energy perspective, so we're exploring that potential. But the location of the building also has great climate impact as well because it's transit adjacent. Three light rail lines within steps of folks' doorsteps plus dozens of bus lines, which allow for options for people. And it doesn't mean that you need to live car-free, but it means that you could be or use your car less. And that is the biggest thing that any one of us can do to improve our climate impact is to drive less. Jason, two of the buildings in this proposal are Employment Development Department buildings. One's the current headquarters, the other the EDD Solar Building. How will workers at those offices be impacted by this project, or are most of them working remotely now? They won't be impacted. We have a, a building program in Sacramento that's long targeted some of our um, most efficient infrastructure for renovation. Um, and those employees are slated to move to a building that's under renovation right now. Um, and so the goal would be to, when they're out, that would be when the developer who was awarded, whoever that is, would begin breaking ground at the EDD building. So we're timing it so that there's very little overlap, but uh, after all of the uh, agencies move out of the buildings. And Jason, from outside, these offices don't fit the traditional look, I think, for a lot of people of what affordable housing is in their mind. What makes these three buildings ideal for the transformation? And can you kind of paint a word picture of what they could look like once the transition's complete? Yeah. And and again, I think it it has to be uh, kind of broken up between, you know, adaptive reuse and and new construction. If something were to be new constructed, that would necessarily involve, you know, demolition of the buildings and something new erected out of the ground, which could look like anything. In an adaptive reuse scenario, um, the uh, the what that looks like to Sasha's point is to basically take the building down to uh, uh, whatever is 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 safe and uh, uh, minimally necessary for demolition and then building it back out for housing. Um, and so you would 
do things like keep the facade. You may you may construct some exterior balconies. Uh, one cool thing is like the the solar building, for example. It's named that because of a south facing solar array, um, and that actually creates a really great opportunity for outside balconies where those solar PVs currently sit. Um, it kind of has a stepped look to it. Um, and so there are there are some intrinsic uh, benefits to the buildings that lend themselves to adaptive reuse. One of the things that you do look for is uh, building foot plate depth um, because, you know, there's only so long that a housing unit can be regardless of the number of unit bedrooms. And so you want to see a double loaded corridor, uh, uh, ideally. And these these have that capacity as well as additional spaces that could be used for community serving amenities, whether that's a you know grocery store, a restaurant or whatever else that would support the development and ultimately the area and other housing projects in the area. So Jason's talked about opportunities. Sasha, let's talk about challenges. What do you see as the biggest challenges in making these transformations, and how do your agencies hope to overcome them? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, we get questions about challenges a lot. And so I would hearken back to the fact that this this comes from the governor's vision, and we've had some years working on this. And as you mentioned, 5,000 units in our pipeline around the state. We've worked through some of the challenges and, and hope to bring all that experience to bear here. I'll acknowledge we have a competitive funding of environment when it comes to affordable housing. And so this is the, the way that we work through that challenge is by bringing a bunch of great minds together, not only from the state and from the development team, but also from our local partners to think about all the tools and resources we have to bring to bear to be able to make something different. So I understand folks want to hear about challenges, but I think that we have the right team assembled to be able to navigate them. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking with two state agencies about their plan to convert three state office buildings in downtown Sacramento into affordable housing. And now we're going to bring in Sacramento Council Member Katie Valenzuela, whose district includes the three buildings that we've been discussing. Council Member Valenzuela, thanks for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. So you've expressed your excitement over this project in a press conference last week. Why do you support the plan? Well, I'm thrilled. I don't know if excited really captures the energy here. We're thrilled. Um, shortly after I came into office, it was December 2020. I think maybe that next month I was on a call with Jason at DGS and the downtown business groups. And the question was, well, what's the plan? These buildings are empty. Are the state workers coming back? Can we lease them to private businesses? And when we mentioned housing, or I think I might have mentioned housing or Jason mentioned it. I don't remember which one of us mentioned it first. There was a glean in Jason's eye that made me think, oh, he's got something in the pipeline here for these projects. So we had a follow-up call where he unveiled their plans, first for just the two EDD buildings. This third building was a new surprise for all of us in a great way. And I was just thrilled. And I've been persistently checking in with Jason might be the right <laughs> word to say, to say, well, when is it? Well, where is it? Well, is there state money available? How can we do this? So we're just really thrilled to see what proposals come forward. This could be, I mean, folks remember that before there were the state buildings, before it was Capitol Mall, that there was housing here. Yeah. You know, our history in Sacramento harkens back to the West End, which was this incredibly diverse um, place where you heard jazz music and great restaurants. And I just imagine us bringing that back to the Capitol Corridor, what that means for our businesses down there. And it, I'm thrilled. 
What conversations have you had with residents, business owners, and your other constituents about the plan? Have they expressed any concerns? Uh, for the most part, it's been great excitement across the board, um, especially knowing that there might be some affordable units. As Sasha mentioned, we are in the central city in particular. It's really hard to find units that an 80% AMI family could afford. So this is really fantastic news. There are folks who are worried that you know it might be too much affordable housing in one place or how we would make it work from an infrastructure perspective. But I will say that those are definitely minority voices. The overall sentiment is just really excited about what this means for the future of downtown and how this could re-energize that whole corridor. During last week's press conference, you admitted that downtown and midtown had very different pandemic experiences. Mm -hmm. Many people still patronizing a number of the midtown businesses, but a lot of people didn't visit or patronize downtown Sacramento as much. How do you think this project will convince people to both live and patronize downtown business? Well, I think a big part of what made Midtown relatively successful, and I don't want to downplay the struggles those businesses still had, but we were living there, right? I live in Midtown. And so when it was safe to do so, we started picking up food and picking up coffee. And those businesses have been able to largely surpass where they were pre-COVID already um, versus the downtown corridor. It was just nobody was living there, right? You know, you'd go down there. It felt like a ghost town. You know, businesses were shuttered and there was just no energy. So I know the downtown partnership has done a lot to do events to bring people downtown, but having a 24-7 downtown where people are living and working and walking their dogs and taking their kids to school and riding the transit will just, I hope, make it a lot more inviting for visitors who come downtown. It'll feel a little more like a neighborhood and feel a little more like a community you want to spend some time in. Much of the state workforce is still working mostly remotely and state workers were a major pillar of the downtown economy prior to the pandemic. Are you concerned that many, if not most of those workers aren't coming back? Well, I think this is really an evolution of that vision of downtown, right? I think what DGS and the state are doing to consolidate the workforce in certain buildings and open up other buildings for new use is, is the future. I think it was probably never super healthy for a downtown to be so dependent on state workers. I My first job out of grad school, I was working at a nonprofit downtown, and our holiday schedule wasn't the same as the state. And you knew when the state workers weren't there because you could not get a sandwich to save your life. Um, it was just everything was shut because that was the only economic driver. This really gives us an opportunity to diversify that clientele, to have people who are patronizing restaurants and coffee shops seven days a week rather just when they're at work. And I think will really lead to a more sustainable business climate in the central city. And I think you've, you've really kind of nailed how you feel about this shaping the future of the area. What does it mean in terms of making more affordable housing available in Sacramento? Oh, well, gosh, <laughs> the central city is the epicenter of this crisis. We have units leasing for well over $3,000 a month, which is not something that most people in the central city can afford. We also have about 1,400 voucher holders that are holding housing choice vouchers, which covers up to 80% AMI that can't find housing, that are in our shelters or on our streets who are desperately looking for that place to live. So having those units available is an incredible strategy to stabilizing our workforce, stabilizing our seniors, folks with disabilities, families, so that they can really be those productive workers, those productive coffee buyers, those people out in the community, and really live the stable lives that makes our whole system work a little bit better. Jason Kenney is Deputy Director of the Department of General Services, Sasha Kurgan, Deputy Secretary of Housing of the Department of Housing and Community Development, and Katie Valenzuela, a Sacramento City Council member. Thank you all so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, a new book out today is asking us how to rethink 
how we view good and healthy bodies, and taking a closer look at diet culture, which has long embraced thinness. The author of It's Always Been Ours, rewriting the story of black women's bodies, joins us to share how this diet culture has disproportionately harmed women of color. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty for Vicki Gonzalez. One banana split and all the cats join in. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty. And for Vicki Gonzalez, a new book is out today asking us to rethink how we view good and healthy bodies. A view of diet culture that has long embraced thinness, literally restricting women with the size of their bodies, controlling what they can and cannot eat. A dynamic that our next guest says is centuries in the making and since the beginning has disproportionately harmed women of color who were often left out of the conversation and an idyllic version of wellness. The author is Jessica Wilson, a Sacramento-based registered dietitian and nutritionist, and she joins us now to discuss her new book, It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. Thanks for taking the time to join us this morning, Jessica. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Mike. You're from Sacramento. When did you become interested in becoming a dietitian nutritionist? (laughs) It's a great question. Um, Actually, the story begins very young. As a young kid, I was always at the top of my growth chart, which as a kid seems like winning, Mm -hmm. right? You're always at the top. You don't want to be in the middle. You don't want to be in the bottom. So I actually started becoming more policed for my body size at a young age, which I think inherently just led me into the field of food and looking at bodies, but from a more pathologizing aspect than um, I am now. So it took a lot of learning and then unlearning um, in clinical practice to understand like how even I was shaped by these narratives and what that looks like for black and brown women now. In a New York Times article that you were featured in, while attending the dietetics program at UC Davis, you were the only black student. What did that experience tell you about how the societal view of health and wellness shapes the field of nutrition? I refer to it as the quinoa and kale path and track of dietetics. Uh, That was pretty much it. That um, I was so I was the only black person there. There were a couple of brown folks and we ended up like misforming this little misfits it felt like like there was a you know everybody else and then there was us who were you know sitting around watching what was happening and wondering what was going on because we were taught about ourselves like black people like brown people what they eat and how they need to be eating you know quinoa and kale um and so it was a very uh i would say harmful environment that really taught us there was only one right way to be eating food Eating historically healthy, and we'll put those in quotes, can mean saying goodbye to a lot of beloved cultural food that's been deemed unhealthy. Rice in Asian food, tortillas, naan, noodles, dumplings, the list goes on and on. Where did those restrictions come from in the first place? A lot of it uh, today and in public health is attributed to the Mediterranean diet, which is historically held up as like the gold standard of diets. Um, a diet that was studied decades ago, only compared against, well, uh, I believe it was Japanese diets, but they were looking for like the healthiest diet with the folks with, you know, the less heart, uh, heart disease and other markers. Uh, but there was not a comparison to, you know, African diets at the time. It was just very based on basically folks that foods that white people were eating, which didn't include, um, 
yeah, traditional foods. So we've just continued to hold on to those foods as the best ones that people should be eating. How did your education prepare you and not prepare you as a registered dietitian? I would say it prepared me 0%. The things that were helpful were biochemistry um, and then human physiology and grad school where it became more complex and understanding that calories in were not calories out. So that was like my first exposure to that one because in dietetics training, you're taught that, you know, everything you eat, you know, turns out, you know, and goes into your body the same way and all calories are the same regardless of what's happening. But when I started seeing people with eating disorders who were not like very thin, um, the calories in calories out, like all of a sudden didn't make sense. People weren't eating and they weren't losing weight and that shouldn't have been possible according to my training. Is it fair to say that where the training fell short and what you've learned on your own since you began your career is that in fact identities in terms of color and sexual preference in fact do or sexuality i should say uh, do in fact play a role in perspectives on health and and diet um that's a really good question and unfortunately i think all of our values inherently are shaped by the dominant narrative so in this one it would be like um, the quinoa and kale narratives mm-hmm. of what's healthy and what's unhealthy. Um, so I feel like it's hard to separate what society tells us is true and what we adopt um, as far as what we think is or we should be eating from what and how our cultural foods are policed to, you know, really understanding that, you know, what is at our cultural roots is really you know, can be really beneficial. And as far as, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity, I think the only thing that comes from these communities is a lot of critical thinking and a lot of critical thought, right? So we're already, you know, as a queer person challenging, you know, what our societal norms are. So I feel like it's an easier leap into understanding like how historical narratives are just not the truth. Sounds like there's a clash between the uniformity of what's being taught and the diversity of the real world. And I also think the reality of the real world. So yes, what is being taught is very like centrist messaging um, and reinforced because that is the only research that is done into nutrition and bodies, right? We're not, you know, putting black and brown folks in research. We're not studying the, you know, cultural benefits to eating cultural foods. So like what is taught is indeed a one size fits all approach that doesn't fit all. Pushing for equity and treating eating disorders, when did you become aware that there is stigma, stereotype, bias in treating disorders like anorexia, binge eating, and bulimia, which are also tied to mental health? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was that moment where, you know, the same moment I was recognizing that calories in is not calories out because it was mm-hmm. mostly my clients of color um, who were just naturally larger folks at the time um, who weren't like the very thin ideal uh, medical providers did not know what to do. And even once we were able to get them, you know, to residential or otherwise treatment facilities, they were experiencing a bunch of racial harm while there. So it was that like both in our practice in all of the assessment tools and then having to be in an environment with mostly white folks, like there was, it was harmful the whole way through. Now, what are some of the most harmful misconceptions that you've run across? <laughs> do, how how long we do we have? To, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
but we could start, you know, just cut me off. <laughs> um, of course, the misconception is only thin white girls and women have eating disorders, which is absolutely not true. And another one that I find is the perception that eating disorders are about becoming thin, you know, attaining a thin ideal. And that is a lot of what, you know, body positivity cultures and communities will tell us, you know, it's just, you know, don't want to be thin anymore and it'll be better, but we don't take into account the um, safety and survival sometimes found for larger folks, folks of color, when we shrink ourselves, both literally and figuratively uh, via having eating disorders. So like, it's not going to be simple. Another one that I can just throw in there that we can be done um, is the idea that black women, brown folks are only getting like the eating disorders that um, have like an overconsumption. So like binge eating disorder or bulimia. Um, and then that really plays into like the largest assumed in like black and brown folks. Um, and inherently, you know, restriction is reserved for those who are thin and predominantly white folks. So it restrictive uh, eating disorders get missed all the time in folks of color. Is this changing? Is it becoming more inclusive? I will shout out my friend Whitney Trotter and Angela Goins, who started the first BIPOC eating disorder conference. Um, that'll be held again this summer. Um, a lot of folks attended, which is amazing. So I like to have hope that it is changing. I also see hope in the 20 year olds who like are listening to this, who are paying attention on social media to these conversations and also seeing themselves in these conversations in a way. So I really feel like they're our future. And that's what gives me hope, especially if they're becoming clinicians um, and going into this field. An awful lot of the challenge that I think all of us have gone through in the last three years has to do with food, nutrition. Right. How did your role mm -hmm. as a dietitian change during the pandemic? That's a great question. Um, a lot of it became reassurance, right? So I don't know when we all decided that our bodies were going to be the same size from like age 25 to age 85. <laughs> and that changed for a lot of people during the pandemic. And it wasn't a considered like a natural normal thing. It just like became this disaster of people perhaps gaining a bit of weight because we were less active or doing other things. And so a lot of my job was about like really reassuring people that bodies are not going to be the same. You know, we can still do things and take care of ourselves. Um, and our body doesn't have to look the same, which was a different conversation than what I had been having. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jessica Wilson, a Sacramento-based registered dietitian nutritionist, discussing her new book, It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. When did these experiences culminate into a book? Oh, uh, in 2020, I, uh, my colleague Alicia McCulloch and I did the Amplify Melanated Voices Challenge on social media for Instagram followers to like center black and brown folks and um, like discussions of social justice rather than, you know, listening to mostly white folks talk about like what they think about racism. Um, and from that came the New York Times article that you already referenced. And then an editor reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to write a book. I said, no. <laughs> she asked again. I said, no. <laughs> That sounds like a lot of work. Um, and then finally she wore me down. So I had to come up with an idea 
uh, well, I had an idea, but I had to come up with a audience. And the dedication starts with for Lexi, who is mentioned in chapter, well, actually all throughout the book, but mostly in the restriction chapter, and decide that it was those folks that I was mostly going to try to reach the 20s and 30s folks, year olds. And, and how did you come to the title? It's always been ours. And that was an evolving one. It was one of the originals out there. And I kept trying to come up with something that, you know, would really like say everything that was in the book, you know, but then really it was these body narratives have always been ours. We just lost, you know, them along the way when we were told what our bodies, what our food should look like. And I've gotten some really great feedback from friends, like so much of what we've been talking about here and otherwise it's just it's always been ours like we've known this as you know cultures that we just have to go in and reclaim that what would you say was most challenging about writing the book uh making you know instagram captions that were 100 <laughs> words into 65,000 of them was very hard but also distilling everything into uh, a book. So I cut out like two different chapters entirely. So it was so much. It's been 15 years of clinical experience. So really getting it down into something that was both, you know, helpful and yeah, distill it all. It's hard. And and what would you say has been most rewarding so far? I will shout out again, those 20 year olds. I have said to folks all along, um, they are reading this book and coming back with questions that are so deep that I can't answer them about my book. And I'm like, excuse me, you are not supposed to be smarter than me after reading my book. Um, and they have been. So really, and it's, you know, I wanted it to be for, and it is for all black women, but the ways that the 20 year olds are reading my book um, has been one of the most rewarding uh, experiences to see where really where our future is headed. Uh, we mentioned a moment ago, Alexi, and, and you wrote about mentoring Alexia Brown while yeah. working at UC Davis. She is a top-ranked gymnast who graduated in 2018, publicly came forward about her experiences with racism and microaggressions while on the team after the murder of George Floyd. What can you mm -hmm. share with us about her experiences and what that says about the culture surrounding athletics and fitness? Mm, it's a really good question. So to again distill it down um it was like happenstance that i ended up connecting with her my spouse um, had been her athletic trainer on for the gymnastics team and saw what was happening and saw the tears and bullying that lexi was experiencing and was like hey i don't know anything as a white person jessica can you just come in here um and you know see what you can do to support her and i found again that me just being there uh, really meant a lot and being somebody who understood and listened. Um, and then again, so gymnastics particularly is really this microcosm of what's happening in athletics where we see the bodies of black women, especially, um, you know, painted as muscular, as aggressive, as, you know, not needing like care and resilient um, that are not in a way that uh, our white counterparts are not seen. And so really, you know, Lexi making her body smaller and trying to fit into like wider gymnastic norms via her eating disorder, really, you know, talk about, I think of Serena Williams, I think of many WNBA players and how they're compared and contrasted to their white counterparts. Since your time at UC Davis, when you were the only black student studying dietetics, 
Do you think there are strides in having dietitians and nutritionists more reflective of the diverse community that needs the service? I think there's always the attempt. And I do some guest lectures at UC Davis now, and there's far more folks of color um, who still, though, will come up to me afterwards and say, I'm really glad to see you survived this because I don't know how I'm going to make it in these still, you know, classes that promote like no white rice, no tortillas, no non. Um so they're definitely in there. And, you know, I encourage folks who are in these fields to stick in there. And hopefully one day, you know, the field will adapt to, you know, be more culturally congruent and supportive for folks. What makes you optimistic that, in fact, we're moving toward that? In addition to seeing the folks who are in the field, I see a lot of, um, I get so very on social media and I do see a lot of clinicians and therapists who are in, you know, food and nutrition coming in and just like not having known the stuff that I am sharing, um, you know, we'll use intermittent fasting as a very specific example, you know, new diet, good for metabolism, all these things. And I'm like, people who don't have food are fasting. Like if we're saying that, you know, we're so healthy because we're, you know, not eating, people have not been eating for a very long time who don't have money for food. And so those moments, I think the more poignant ones, people are like, oh, maybe this stuff that I have been learning isn't, you know, really what is helpful for people. What can we do on an individual level? Yeah, that one's really hard. So there's two things um, that I always try and remind folks is that I can feel only, you know, so good about my body. It doesn't really matter how I feel about my body when I go out into, you know, society, uh, depending on how folks treat black women. Uh, but what I can do is really find community so that I'm not alone in that. Um, it can be really hard and really scary, but both seeing myself reflected, having these um, more in-depth conversations about bodies and body narratives for folks of color, for queer and trans folks, for fat folks, you know, those really have, I've found to be like something that one can rely on internally to know that they're not alone when in this space. Even if I have to perform in a certain way as a black woman or engage in respectability, I know that that's what it is. It's not me. That's not good enough for a situation. What do you hope that readers take away from the book? And does that hope differ depending upon who's reading? Yeah. So I really hope that black folks feel seen in this book. There's so few books that I have found for me that speak directly about bodies and directly to black folks. So I really hope people feel seen in this book in ways that haven't done before. And then I really hope that there for all readers that there is understanding of the way that respectability politics, the way that resilience and restriction are killing us in some form or another um, in a way that allows black women to just be, to have ease. And then I hope we all celebrate black joy for the rebellion and resistance it is. Jessica Wilson is a Sacramento based registered dietitian nutritionist discussing her new book. It's always been ours rewriting the story of black women's bodies. Jessica, thank you so much for spending the time with us this morning. Oh, you're welcome. It was great. Still ahead, the Tahoe Institute for Natural Science joins us to share their efforts in conservation and educating the public on the Tahoe Basin's unique natural history. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez, we're back in just a moment.
Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez. The Tahoe Basin is one of the most beautiful places in California, the world, really, to explore. Being in Tahoe's abundant nature is important not just for leisure, but it's also critical for research. Combining both is what the Tahoe Institute of Natural Science is doing. The nonprofit organization has a long-term goal of bringing a world-class informative nature center and educational facility to the Lake Tahoe area. TINS, TINS for short, works to diligently advance knowledge of the Tahoe Basin's natural history, conservation, and ecosystem, and aims to awaken the public's curiosity and promote responsible environmental citizenship. Will Richardson, co-founder and executive director of the Tahoe Institute for Natural Science, spoke with Insight host Vicki Gonzalez to discuss the organization and its important research. Well, you co-founded the Tahoe Institute of Natural Science, TINS, back in 2010. What sparked this idea? Well, um, so I had been uh, living in Tahoe seasonally for 10 years or so. And um, when I first got there, uh, 1994, I was just struck by its natural beauty, the terrain, uh, the scenery. But also um, kind of the juxtaposition of, of some of the past development against that and and um, all the people, you know. So, so back then, um, we thought maybe there were eight to ten million visitors a year. And then uh, some clever people took a look at cell phone data and found there was actually twenty-four million annual visitors coming through. And that was just in just in twenty fourteen. That number's really gone up since COVID. So, so all of those visitors are looking for some sort of nature experience, right. e- even if it's just. You know, that's what brings people to Tahoe. And, and even if they're just there to ski or, or even just gamble, I'm sure everyone wants, you know, the context of the scenic backdrop, that a nice look at the lake. And it's very beautiful. But there's no central clearinghouse for for information about Tahoe's nature. And 24 million people is, is I think that's like two and a half times annual visitation to, to Great Smoky Mountain National Park, which is our most visited national park. Um and any national park has a has a a nature center where people can come and learn about about where they are and, and, and the environment. And so I saw a need for that. Tahoe lacks that. It's it's a world class destination. It needs a world class uh, nature center. And so that's what you're working to create now. That's right. So that was that was the you know, that's the long term goal. Beautiful places with incredible natural history often have a, a nature center like that where, it, you know, a central clearinghouse where you can come get the information to learn about where you are and what makes it so special. So that is our long-term goal is to have a, a, a physical facility. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, um, we've got to just build up our organization and and try to get that information out through our programming. So the main three program areas for us are, are education, with working with kids, mostly in-school field trip programs, uh, summer camps in the summer, and then outreach, taking that education to the rest of the public, mostly through outings, and then uh, and then we do lots of real conservation-based research. Uh, in the background that kind of informs all of that education. In the past 13 years you've been doing this with TINS, the Tao Institute for Natural Science. What has been the most rewarding thing about this nonprofit? I think looking back, I would say, I mean, we've, we've had lots of, you know, kind of milestone moments, but really just the, the cumulative impact. Um, 
yeah, we're heading into our 14 year year here, 14th year. And at the end of last year, I think we'd we'd made more than um, 65,500 student contacts, which is uh, it's a lot, especially considering that most of those are individual school programs at maybe 25, 30 students at a time. We've done hundreds and hundreds of outings, you know, wildflower walks, bird walks, lots of slideshow presentations on all kinds of topics. We do outings with geology, stargazing, most most natural history topics we, we can cover. And uh, we've been able to reach thousands and thousands of participants through that. And then on the research side, we're we're really helping to guide land management decisions. Most of the research we do is looking at wildlife responses to certain treatments like fuel thinning, getting conifers out of aspen stands, stream restoration. And so we're able to to look at the wildlife responses of those treatments and then uh, help guide some of those those decisions and policies. Given that you've touched the lives of tens of thousands of students already, um, and also just adults as well, when you when you go on your walks and, and, and outings, what do people gain from this? What do they tell you after their experience? Well, just yesterday I was leading a group, um, co-leading a group. We work with a lot of partners. Up at uh, up at Chickadee Ridge mm-hmm. on on some snowshoeing actually by Mount Rose up up, up at Mount Rose <laughs> actually yesterday we were we were on skis and um, I got told that uh, Tins was their absolute favorite group of all the nonprofits so so that's always nice to hear but um, you know I think um, some of the most rewarding feedback we get is being able to to show some of the the ecological stories that exist all around us that maybe people aren't aware of. And nature is just full of those. Tahoe in particular, it's it's extremely rich and diverse. And so if we can connect people to to nature in a deeper way, um, you know, that's always really, really rewarding. Yeah, given that you've been in the Tahoe Basin for nearly 30 years, what makes the plant and the wildlife so special in the basin? Well, uh, you've got you've got a few things kind of coming together perfectly there. It's just by its geographic location, you have Great Basin communities, Pacific Slope communities. These are you know plant and animal communities. You have the flora and fauna of of the Sierra Nevada itself, and then you have some boreal relics that that are still hanging on since the last ice age. And so you've got all this diversity kind of all in one place. And then you add in different microclimate factors because of terrain, and and the the mountains create um, you know lots of uh, lots of three dimensional variation there. And so it's just an incredibly rich and diverse place. Given that, you know, back in 2014, you said there was, you know, some 24 million visitors to Lake Tahoe, and that has just grown, you know, in recent years. What do you think the most concerning thing is when it comes to, you know, that that traffic and that capacity surrounding the Tahoe Basin and the ecology and the environment? Yeah, COVID really um, made a lot of people aware of just how important nature exposure was, and even just the ability to to get to places that are a little less densely populated. So we saw a huge spike in visitation uh, in 2020. We thought it might get be kind of quiet, but it was as busy as ever. And along with that, I think partly because of the stresses of COVID maybe, uh, people weren't always on their best behavior. And so I think 
just the the overall numbers of, of visitors um, ha- has increased a lot, and we need to make sure that that folks are respecting and treating these environments with with the stewardship and care that they need. And so that's a big goal of ours. Um, I mean, the ultimate goal behind our organization is to create and cultivate a, a community that better understands and therefore appreciates and then hopefully cares for the, these natural resources. We tend to love what we care about and we tend to care about what we know about. And so if we can help people to know the context and the, the, what's really going on in the natural world um, at Tahoe and beyond, then, then we can all do a better job of taking care of it. Yeah, that's wonderful. You also have a pretty cool mascot. <laughs> it's a really vibrant bird. Can you talk to us about it? Sure. That's, that's right. It's the Western Tanager. So, so we chose that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's just beautiful. Um, but two, it's, it's really striking. And I get known from, you know, my, among my friends and stuff who may not know me, uh, my professional life in great detail, but people just know uh, that, like, I like birds and they can come to me with their bird questions. So a lot of times people will tell me they saw a bald eagle. And I said, yeah, that's great. We have bald eagles. Yes. Good, good, good job. I'm happy about that. I want everybody to see bald eagles. But maybe once a year, somebody will come to me and tell me that they saw this exotic, really colorful thing. And it must have been an escaped cage bird. It had like it was yellow with black wings and like white stripes somewhere and red face. And then so they're perfectly describing a male western tanager. And this is a bird that's actually quite common in Tahoe, but they tend to stick to the canopy. So if you're not looking up, uh, you will miss them. And if you do look up, well, then you might see them quite a bit. And if you learn what they sound like, then you'll hear them <laughs> everywhere. So this is the kind of thing that it's a real aha moment for people. They say, oh, my gosh, we're surrounded by tanagers. Most birders have that, um, I call it like a trigger bird or something like that, that first bird that they really became aware of just what was around them that they weren't paying attention to. And then you look in the field guide, you start to look at all the other stuff that you're not seeing. That opens your eyes. You start to look for those other species and all those other things that you you maybe weren't seeing before. And that that's that's the kind of moment that uh, it creates birders. It creates naturalists, and and so that's why we chose the tanager. That's that's what we're hoping to do is open open everybody's eyes to uh, to the nature that's that's all around them. This must never get boring for you. Never gets boring. <laughs> no, it's my, my favorite part of the job is that I get to spend a lot of time just in nature. Uh, either sharing it or by myself, especially with the the research side of things. And I see new things all the time. I'm I'm constantly learning. And then that gets me excited. And then I want to share that. Yeah, it's a good job. What are some upcoming programs that you're excited about? Well, we have programs year round. Um, So some of the best ways for your listeners to get involved... um, I guess it depends what they're interested in. If they've got kids, we, we do have summer camps that we just opened up registration for. Um, this includes some some backpacking camps with the Rim Trail Association, uh, but mostly day camps. Um, so that could be a little harder for for some of the listening audience here uh, to, to participate in. We do have some, some materials online that they might uh, check out on our website. And then uh, for adults, though, or for you know, if you want to bring a group up and uh, just check out our calendar, we have we have tons of, of mostly free uh, nature outings year round. Right now, we're doing a lot of snowshoe tours. Um, next Friday, we're we're going to head down to Carson Valley and and look for raptors. We get a lot of interesting wintering raptors. 
Um, we do lots of citizen science through the year, so that includes things like bird counts. We have a bald eagle count we coordinate. We coordinate a butterfly count. We have a, a whole weekend dedicated to dragonflies in the summertime. The citizen science programs, we're, we are trying to collect data, but we're also, a major emphasis of that is learning, exploring, having fun, um, photography, teaching people about. So, you know, if you don't know your dragonflies, but you're dragonfly curious, <laughs> Look us up and come along. We'll we'll show you all about dragonflies. Well, Will, thank you so much. It just seems like you have stuff going on year-round for people to enjoy, kids and adults. Kids and adults, absolutely. So, yeah, um, you know, check out our website. We we would love to help connect you, your friends, your family to, to Tahoe's nature in, in a deeper way. Thank you so much, Will. All right, thank you. <laughs> Will Richardson is the co-founder and executive director of the Tahoe Institute for Natural Science. We provided a link to the Institute on the Insight page. And that's Insight for today. Learn more about our guests at capradio.org insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to join the conversation, just email us, insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producers Nick Dobas and Victor Corral-Martinez with managing editor Aram Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Megan Minata. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones. And our engineers are Antonio Muniz and Chris Feltz. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Mike Haggerty, and for Vicki Gonzalez, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.